0: This is not something you should try at home, really, is it? (laughs) Yeah. I actually want to talk about the Romans 8 sandwich today. And let me tell you, it's a much, much better sandwich than the Subway sandwich. And it will do a lot more than protect your iPhone. Did you say sandwich? I mean... Here's a guy who's got a PhD, and I know all about theology. I've got all these books on systematic theology, and I want to talk about a Romans 8 sandwich. But actually, I think it is highly theological because I'm going to explain Romans 8 indeed as a sandwich. And uh, we, we understand what a sandwich looks like. It's, it's generally some filling between two Slices of bread. So one slice is what I'm calling no condemnation. The other slice is what I'm calling no separation. And the filling in the middle is not an iPhone, but it's what I call no defeat. And this is so much the essence of the Christian life that was actually won for us by Jesus through his death on the cross. We live lives before our God now of no condemnation, no separation, and no defeat. So I want to unpack all that in the context of the book of Romans, but specifically Romans chapter 8. By way of background, Romans is actually not all that easy to read. I, I find most of Paul's epistles take a bit of reading because he tends to write in long sentences and uh, I can't imagine what it must have been to try to read the Apostle Paul in the original Greek. But you pick up any modern translation and I reckon on average the sentences in Paul's epistles are longer than they are in any other books of the Bible. So they really take a lot of um, unpicking. These days, People who instruct writers will tend to say, don't have too many words with more than 50, uh, not too many sentences with more than 50 words in them, because people can't actually keep track of your thought when you have a very long sentence. But so many of the sentences in Paul's epistles are well over 50 words. Go and do a word count and and have a look at, at what I mean. But, um, Perhaps it was because Paul was so keen to provide a robust theological defence of the gospel. You see, in his time, the gospel was something which was very new good news. And him having been a Roman, his own conversion took him from one form of radicalism to another form of radicalism because he was a radical persecutor of the Jews until his conversion and after that he became a radical presenter of the gospel and the there was never a religion before Christianity and there has never been a religion after Christianity which has had a message as radical as the message of the gospel the idea that any of us can enter the afterlife on the basis of anything other than our own works or our own goodness, was totally foreign to the people who were living at that time. And that's why Christianity was such a radical change in the way of thinking about salvation and the afterlife. Romans itself has had an enormous influence on uh, important thinkers in the church. Martin Luther, um, Saint Augustine, uh, John Wesley, among many, many others, ended their rebellion against God after they read and meditated on Romans 8. And if you want a good theological defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Romans uh, Romans, the whole book, not just chapter 8, but the whole book is a pretty good place to start. Just to put the chapter in in context, uh, the important messages of chapters 1 through to 7 of Romans are first that we are sinners prior to salvation. So in chapter 1 to 3, he builds the case that before we actually become followers of Jesus Christ and accept the gift of salvation, as far as God is concerned, our position is that of sinners. And sinners, of course, are condemned to hell. So prior to us making... And that that actually is what's wrong with being a sinner. Um, A sinner really is someone who hasn't acknowledged that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth and the life and the only way to the Father. So that's why good people go to hell. I can think of many, many good people who are not actually headed for heaven at all simply because they have not accepted the gift of Salvation. The key verse here is in chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In fact, one definition of sin is actually falling short of the glory of God. So there isn't a person on the planet, past, present, or future for that matter, who has not sinned because we don't come into this world having acknowledged Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour. So it's an important theological point that Paul was making. Then towards uh, chapter 4, he actually spends a lot of time talking about Abraham having been seen as God, as righteous simply because of his faith, because he believed the promise that God had made to him. To him. Why Abraham? Well, Abraham was a really important figure to the Jews. I mean, he was obviously one of the fathers of of Israel and uh, one of the patriarchs. But also, by the time of Jesus, um, Abraham had almost become deified himself. And the teaching of many of the rabbis was that Abraham went to heaven. Because he was a perfect man, because he got everything right, living uh, before God. And so it was through his works that he actually obtained the right to enter into heaven. And Paul uses this phrase, this, this, this general phrase here about five times in chapter 4 of Romans. And, and building the case that Abraham was reckoned righteous by God because of his belief in the promises was a very important theological point for Paul to make to the people of the day. And then the final main point or main message in Romans chapters 1 through to 7 is that we are sons after salvation. That is, we are the righteousness of God in Christ and it's our righteousness that enables us to take on the position as sons and daughters, of course, of the living God. And in, in Jewish times around this, this time, of course, actually sons were adopted by their fathers. And the, the role of the, the pedagogue or teacher was to take the son... And as the son grew, was actually to make the son like the father. And when it was deemed that the son had become like the father, he was actually then adopted by his father. So adoption back then had a rather different meaning to the way in which we use the word today. So when the Bible says we're sons of God, that's a big, big theological statement because it means that through faith in Jesus Christ, God sees us as his sons. The key verse here is in chapter 5 verse 8. God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the sense in which we actually deserve nothing at all from God. Because there was nothing we did other than be in that state of sinfulness that caused Jesus Christ to die for us. We hadn't done anything for him. Certainly those of us who are alive today couldn't have because we didn't live 2,000 years ago. But no one did anything for Jesus Christ that caused him to make that sacrifice. He made that sacrifice willingly because it was a demonstration of God's love for us. So that's the background. Um, Paul is, is building a case here. And he's building a case for what I've called the Romans 8 sandwich. So, first slice of bread is what I called no condemnation. And and when you start meditating on this idea that we are not under condemnation, it's a very, very powerful idea. I just want to read through verses 1 to 4. There is therefore... And I've added the words of Jesus, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now there's quite a lot in this short paragraph that I, I just want to um, bring to your attention. The first is the word therefore. That's there because it's recalling everything that Paul has said in chapters one Seven. So he's built this case that we're sinners in God's eyes until we make the step and become followers of Jesus Christ. He's made the point that it is by faith that we enter into eternal life. And he used Abraham to belabor the point. And he'd also, of course, made the point that God loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for us that we might be sinners no more but sons of the living God. So the word therefore has a lot of weight in the context of this paragraph. The fact that there is no condemnation relates to our our status before God. Before we become Christian, we are condemned to death because the wages of sin is death. And until we've made that move to become a follower of Jesus Christ, God sees us as sinners and therefore we are condemned. However, for those who are in Christ Jesus, that is for Christians, there is now no condemnation. There is no way that we are condemned to eternal separation from Jesus Christ. To spend eternity in the flames with the devil and all of his evil spirits. Because those who are in Christ do not walk according to the flesh. But they walk according to the spirit. Because at the instant of our salvation the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. And the Bible assures us that God actually writes his law on the tablets of our heart. So that there is a kind of spiritual, supernatural transplant that goes on. We have a heart transplant, a heart on which is written uh, the law of God. And so it's almost as if we accidentally fulfill uh, the moral law of the Old Testament once we become a Christian. Because we only become what I call fully fulfilled as we live out that which is right before God's eyes. I love this expression here, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. And it's quite interesting that here Paul switches to the first person. So much of what he says in chapters 1 through 7, when he uses the word you, it's actually plural. It should be used. Well, I mean, that's one of the problem with the English language. We need you and use Really? because it's often hard to tell whether the context is singular or plural. But here, he makes it a very personal thing by using that personal pronoun. And we can put us as me into that context. And made, made free is this Greek word, um, eluthereo. I'm pretty sure it's an A-O pronunciation on the end, which means to acquit. Or to liberate. Now I really like that you see Because the opposite of condemnation is justification So our status prior to our salvation Is condemnation Some of you have heard this before more than once Because it's one of my big things I love to teach about what it means to be saved But before we're saved You see our, our legal status is condemned After we're saved our legal status is Justified because God has announced that we have been acquitted of sin because of the sacrifice that Jesus made. And it's interesting that this particular Greek word is only ever used in the New Testament in the context of Jesus setting believers free from the dominion and therefore the consequences of sin. I think that's very special. So the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, that really, if you want to get a bit of a handle on it, I like to think of that as you know, the law that God downloaded into our hearts when we became Christians. That's the law of the spirit of life in Christ. It's made us free from the law of sin and death. So we no longer come under the dominion of sin. Does that mean we never sin? No, it doesn't, because... A moment's reflection on our own lives will show that, of course, we have committed sin after we've become Christians. But you see, that sin does not condemn us because as far as God is concerned, we've been acquitted through the sacrifice that Jesus made. How did it happen? It happened because God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. In other words, Jesus Christ became a human being incarnate. He was fully God and fully man. He determined that he would live fully as a man and he died as a man on the cross. And you know when those, the, the Bible records, of course, that by his stripes we were healed and we know that when he was struck with the, uh, the Roman whip that um, tied into the, the cords on that whip were pieces of metal, and pieces of stone, and they were designed to actually strip the flesh off the back of the person who was being flogged. And the Bible actually records that after that flogging and after the treatment that was meted out to him by, by the Romans there, he was actually unrecognisable as a human being. That's how bad it was. There's never been a movie That's depicted what Jesus looked like because you can still see the form of a man. But the Bible says he was so, so deformed by that flogging that he was unrecognisable. Why is that? Because, you know, those those, um, whips, they would actually tear so much flesh from the bones that they would expose the internal organs. That was what happened to Jesus. Why is that? Because... God condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus. That's why the Bible says by his stripes we are healed. We are healed of every kind of sickness and disease, physical, mental, emotional, social, the whole lot, by the shed blood of Jesus and by the, the, um, the removing of the flesh of his back as he was flogged. And that was done so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So that's why we're righteous. That's why God sees us as righteous, because as Jesus was flogged, God saw our sin being dealt with. And that's the case for every person who has ever lived, who lives now, and whoever will live, who chooses to become righteous a follower of Jesus Christ. That's that's an amazing thing, isn't it? No condemnation. So think of that as a slice of bread in this wonderful Romans 8 sandwich. Let's have a look at the other slice of bread on the sandwich now. This is the no separation slice. And again, I've got a fair portion of scripture to read here. I've, I've left some out because it won't all fit on the screen. Um, so I'll give you some homework to actually go away and read the whole of chapter 8, uh, including verses 31 through to uh, 39. So Paul goes through a whole list in chapter 8. And then he says, what can we say to all these things? So in chapter 8, as he summarizes his whole theological thesis, he says, what can we say to all these things? In summary, if God is for us. Who can be against us? That on its own is a huge statement. If God is for us, and he is, who can be against us? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? How can they? We're justified. We've been acquitted of our sin. It is God who justifies, not man. It doesn't matter what anybody thinks of you, what anybody says about you. It doesn't matter what you think about yourself or the words you speak over your own life. It is God who justifies. It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen who is even at the right hand of God who makes intercession for us. Sitting at the right hand of a father, the right hand was the hand of favour, if, if the father said to his son come and sit at my right hand that was a signal of the father's favour over the son, so Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the father, it tells us that in Ephesians and it also then says and we are seated in heavenly places with him, so the picture of, that I have is of God, on his right hand is Jesus and right next to Jesus that's where we are, that's our spiritual home And he intercedes to God for us. Isn't that a powerful idea? So when you think like that, so how can we be separated from God when we're seated next to Jesus and he's seated next to God and he's interceding to God on our behalf? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Isn't that interesting? It says, Who, not what, and then it goes on with this list, shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or peril, or sword. See, there is a who behind all those things, isn't there? The who is Satan, who's trying to tear us away from our rich inheritance as sons and daughters of the living God. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him. I don't know how I did that. (laughs) Get an extra M in there for free today. (laughs) who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That list is a long list. It's not exhaustive, but it's intended to convey the idea that You can put anything you like in that list. Nothing will ever separate us from the love of God, which is in or has been revealed through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, no condemnation, no separation. I want to talk now about the idea of no defeat, which, if you like, is the meat that is sandwiched between the two slices of bread. There are a couple of really important verses here. Um, There are these two and then there's a couple more on the next slide. The first thing is we did not receive a spirit of bondage uh, again to fear but we receive the Spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out. <laughs> this is dry out. I did, Fair Dinkum. I did proofread these this morning, but it's funny how often your eyes see what they want to see, isn't it? Yeah. You know, that's good reason to get someone else to proofread. Dry out. What? The, no, yeah. <laughs> so we cry out, Abba Father. And um, you know, I was thinking if if David and Ainsley had had voices this morning. Um, I would have said to them let's sing you know um, oh what's how's the words go Um, we are no longer a slave to fear was it I I am a child of God I'm no longer a slave to fear I just love that song because it reminds me of this verse here verse 15 in chapter 8 of of, um, Romans you know um, when, when we're in that state of sinfulness, you know, we have every reason to fear. And I actually think a lot of behaviour of people who don't know Jesus Christ is motivated by fear, although they can't articulate it. They actually have a fear of death because deep down inside they know there's only heaven or hell. I think we're pre-programmed to know that. And that's one reason why I think the um, militant atheists are so, so aggressive because deep down inside they know. They can't deny that there's only two outcomes, as it were. But we haven't got that spirit, of, that spirit of bondage to fear. We have the spirit of Christ in us. See this idea of adoption coming out again? God sees us as sons and daughters. When, when, when you're adopted, you, you are entitled to the same inheritance as the other siblings. So we're entitled to the same inheritance as Jesus we cry out, Abba, Father. A lot of people say that means, means Daddy, Father. And, and it, it does in a, in a sense, but um, Daddy almost kind of makes it too um, childish, as it were. But it, the, the idea is that we have such a closeness to God as our Father that we can actually include Him in everything we do. So you know I've I've said this before um, probably more than once but even when I'm driving to work I just have a sense that my abba father is with me and I can ask him which lane should I be driving on the motorway or should I get off the motorway and drive per service road because I don't like wasting time sitting in traffic and and I reckon God tells me which even which lane to drive that that's that's the abba daddy the the father who cares so much. You know, there's there's not too much I won't do for David and Ainsley. Why? Because I love them. And and they know they can pick up the phone and ring me and I'll drop everything I'm doing if I'm in a good mood. No, seriously. <laughs> Why is that? Because they're my kids. They're my kids. I'll do any I would die for my kids. Hopefully not today. <laughs> But that's the, and that's the kind of relationship we have with, 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 with our God. So that's one of the elements in this no defeat thing. Uh, next, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. That's verse 18 in chapter 8. Do you know, the truth is, we're going to have some pretty tough times. The truth is, you know, it's a misrepresentation of the Christian life to say, well, Jesus Christ has dealt with everything on the cross. And you know what? We're we're, um, eligible to all of the blessings in Deuteronomy 28. So we won't have any sickness. There won't be any barrenness. We're going to have lots of financial wealth. You know, we're not going to be persecuted, we're going to be on top, we're not going to be on the bottom, all those things. And yes, all of that is true, but the the fact of the matter is that we go through trials and tribulations. Jesus even said we would have persecutions. And the number one persecutor, of course, is the devil. But you know, there are many people who are open to him to use. And so often the agent by which persecution comes is another human being. So when I say there's no defeat, what I'm actually talking about is that ultimately we win. Um, Ainsley was talking last week, I think it was, about the fact that if you read the back of the book, you see that we win. In other words, the, the war, if you like, is something we win. But I'll tell you what, sometimes we get bruised in the battle. So this Christian life, is not always a life that we live on top of the mountain. Sometimes, for all kinds of reasons, we find ourselves in a dark valley. But what does Psalm 23 remind us of? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, yet will I fear no evil. So the bad stuff will happen. I, I don't know, I don't think I can recall any Christian I've ever met who hasn't had some bad stuff happen. It happens. It happens. But you know what? The glory that shall be revealed in us is what God has in store for us in eternity. And glory is an attribute of God. One of these days I'll, pre- I'll preach on the attributes of God. Glory is an attribute of God. And it, it actually means literally weightiness or, or heaviness. And when you think about it, if, if, if it is God who sustains... The whole universe, how weighty is he? Just think about that. I mean, it just boggles the mind, doesn't it? He's so weighty. Well, that's what glory is all about. We're going to have that kind of glory. So that sounds to me like no defeat. Ultimately, we're going to have a lot of battles and we might get bruised and battered in the battles physically emotionally, mentally, and we do, but we need to know that the war has already been won on our behalf by Jesus, and we're going to have that glory. And you know, also in chapter 8, I don't have time to really talk about this today, but chapter 8 talks about how the whole of creation groans for the revelation of the sons of God. The whole of creation is something that God loves, and he's redeeming. So it's not just us. It's all of creation. And all of creation is groaning, is waiting to see the sons of God revealed. They're waiting for that glory. And we're assured by Paul that it will be revealed in us. The other aspect of this, and we know, the other aspect of no defeat is this. And we know that all things work together for good. To those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. For who he foreknew. He also predestined to be conformed. To the image of his son. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover whom he predestined. These he also called. Whom he called. He also justified. And whom he justified. Those he also glorified. That's verses 28-28. To Verse 28 is well known. It's often quoted. Um, when bad stuff is happening in your life, it's just as likely someone's going to walk up to you, you know, pat you on the back and say, it's okay, all things work together for good. You know, But really, they need to read the, the rest of it because very rarely does just a scrap of scripture contain the fullness of meaning. So what's this good all about? Well, ultimately, it's actually about this glorification when we actually, as it were, begin to experience the same weight, as it were, that is a characteristic of God or an attribute of God. And yes, the good we're talking about is that ultimate eternal good. And I personally do not subscribe to the idea that God causes anything bad in our lives. So whenever our experience doesn't match up, for example, to the promises in Deuteronomy 28, it's not necessarily that we lack faith, it's not necessarily that we've engaged in sin. So often it will simply be that there is this um, devil and he's roaming the earth and his whole purpose is to rob, um, to destroy and to kill. And he'll do everything he can to kill our dreams. He'll do everything to make us sick. He'll do everything to make us fail in life. But you know what? God will use even that for good. For us individually and for those around us. And you notice there's no and in this verse here. To those who love God. It doesn't say and. It says To those who are called according to his purpose. In other words. If you love God you are called. According to his purpose. And his, his purpose. In the earth today. And his purpose ultimately. It's all about redemption. See Jesus died on the cross. And in his death. We were redeemed. Or we were bought back. By the price he paid. We were brought right back. To the Edenic covenant. That's where we're blessed, we have dominion, we have the capacity for multiplication and the whole kingdom of God is based on the idea of multiplication. We're given all that authority, we're given um, the responsibility to tend the garden, that is to to work as a co-creator with God, but all of that, that's what we've been redeemed back to. There is a sense, however, in which what, what we're called to do in the here and now is to enforce that redemptive prize that Jesus Christ won on the cross, because there's a sense in which redemption has not yet been fully consummated. It was won by Christ on the cross. Our role as Christians today is to enforce it, but it will be fully consummated at the second coming of Jesus Christ. So the purpose that God is about is redemption. Of all of creation. Alright. This this wonderful plan. This wonderful purpose that God has in the earth today. It's all focused on redemption. Bringing everything back. It doesn't mean we're going to go back to a literal Eden by the way. But it does mean we're going to go back to that covenant. That um, God made with Adam and Eve. Right back at the time of creation. Now, the idea that God foreknows, some people use this, this um, idea, Calvinists in particular, they've developed this whole um, doctrine that it's only people that God chose who ever become Christians. In other words, we don't have any free will about it, that God's either decided we're going to become Christians and uh, we can't resist his grace um, and the way most of us who are in Pentecostal movements would understand it is that because God is omniscient, that is, He knows everything, He does know ahead of time who is going to become a Christian or not, but He Himself does not interfere with our capacity to make the choice. That is, we're being given free will. So, this is a very, uh, quite a controversial um, theological thing. There are some denominations like Presbyterians and Lutherans who hold to the idea of um, predestination, um, but on the whole, most Christian denominations, including Pentecostal movements, do not. They do believe that we have the choice as to whether or not we will become followers of Jesus Christ. Now, if if you understand it like that, so, see, um, God knew... From the point of our conception, actually, from before that, whether or not we were going to make the choice, but He doesn't force us. I think my personal view, and and don't necessarily—I wouldn't insist on this—but my personal view is that God will bring us to the point where where we are forced to make a choice, but He doesn't actually make the choice for us. And I think as we pray for our loved ones who do not know Jesus. You know he God will respond to that, and he will bring them to a point where they have to make a choice, but they still have the capacity to choose. But for those who choose, guess what we 're predestined to be conformed to the image of His son. How do you like that? So once I made the choice to become a Christian, it was inevitable it was inevitable that I would become like Jesus uh, definitely in god 's eyes. But hopefully as I allow God to to form me, I become more and more like Christ. And I know I'm not the person I was before I was saved. I know that. I know that I'm, as it were, a gooder person than I was because of the good of Jesus Christ in me. So if you love God, which is your choice, then if you love him, you're called according to his Purpose of redemption. You're predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And why is that? Because Jesus is the firstborn among many. He's the firstborn in the sense that he's the the elder or the oldest son, but also that he has preeminence. Why is that? We know that because he's seated at the right hand of the father and we're seated next to him, spiritually speaking. Don't you love this? Moreover, whom he predestined, that's us predestined to become like Christ, these he also called, called to him, called to particular vocation, given specific assignments and those he called he justified. Well, we've talked about justification already, so I won't belabor the point. Those whom he justified, those he also glorified. And that's A reference to our eternity in heaven with Him. So, how's that for a sandwich? (laughs) Hey, It's the best sandwich you'll be getting all day. That's what I reckon. It's better than that Subway sandwich. Not that I mind Subway sandwiches. I think they're pretty good. But that Subway sandwich was strong enough to um, protect an iPhone 6. Let me tell you, the Romans 8 sandwich is strong enough to protect you and me. No condemnation. No condemnation because we have been justified. No separation. There is nothing that we can experience that can ever separate us from the love of God expressed in the death of Jesus Christ, His Son. And there's no defeat. Because ultimately, as Ainsley reminded us last week, we win because the war has already been won for us by Jesus Christ. Yes, we might get scarred in some of the battles, but ultimately we do not suffer defeat. Well, I thought on that note that... um, it would make sense to have communion. So I've just got that verse from the beginning of Romans chapter 8 up, just as a, as a reminder, at least of one of the aspects of communion. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You, you can hand the emblems out, Jeanette, if you wish. Thank you. I don't want to jump again. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. <coughs> For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned him in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Let's just take communion reflecting on those scriptures.